0: Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events, hosted by, or associated with, the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from the Irish Memory Studies Network Distinguished Lecture Series on the theme of Methodologies of Memory. This series is generously funded by UCD College of Arts and Celtic Studies and the Irish Research Council's New Foundation Scheme. The sixth lecture in this series was given by Dr. Naomi Macarivi from the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. Dr. Macarivi's lecture, Memory and Reconciliation, the 1641 Rebellion in Northern Irish History and Memory, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Thanks very much Jane and um, thanks also for Emily for giving me the opportunity to speak to you and thank you for being here. Um, I'm a little bit nervous actually because this has taken me outside of my comfort zone in, um, in various ways which I'll explain in a second um, but John um, Brannigan did some groundwork for me last week uh, when he advertised my paper and joked about the bracketed northerners <laughs> um, in the title um, because in many ways my paper this afternoon is about those bracketed northerners and their distinctive relationship with the history of memory of the 1641 Rebellion. I say they, but of course I'm approaching this topic as a Northerner myself. Um, In some ways I'm surprised to find that my research has taken me back to Northern Ireland Um, But when I arrived in 17th century Ireland for my base in English Renaissance Literature um, during the transition from MA to PhD, the very first thing I saw in my reading around the 1641 Rebellion was the Troubles, Um, so perhaps it was inevitable that I would end end up back in Northern Ireland even and perhaps especially um, from my new base in Dublin but I'm uneasy in this position. I'm a specialist in the writing of 17th century Ireland, and yet I've been reading about murals and the Orange Order and the Arts Council of Northern Ireland and Loyalist paramilitaries and Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Um, As a result, this project has involved confronting both the history of the Troubles and my personal memories of growing up in Belfast and Lisbon through the 1980s and 1990s, and both have shaped the development of this project in more ways than I um, possibly even realise. But I've come to Northern Ireland with specific interests in in 1641. Many of you, I'm sure, don't know much about the 1641 rebellion, um, and I'm not going to change that too much today. (laughs) (laughs) Suffice to say that it began in October 1641 as a conspiracy led by a group of Catholic landowners, the so-called deserving Irish, who had been treated favourably in the plantations they planned to seize a number of strategic strongholds throughout Ireland to force concessions from Charles I from a position of strength as the Scots had done before them. The plot to seize Dublin Castle on the night of 22nd of October failed, but other key strongholds were taken. This was a two-tiered rebellion, however, and the first phase, um, coordinated by the deserving Irish, was immediately followed by a more populous uprising, which, quite outside the control of the original leaders, saw the dispossessed Catholics rise up against the Protestant settlers whom they held responsible um, for their losses in the plantations. From the outset, there were allegations of the systematic and widespread slaughter of Protestants contemporary estimates suggested that as many as 150,000 Protestants died in the months following the rebellion, a number that exceeds by about 50,000 the size of the entire Protestant population in Ireland at that time. Today, the best estimate is that between four and 5,000 Protestants lost their lives, with roughly the same number of Catholics dying in retaliatory attacks. This is clearly a significant death toll but the massive inflation of the number of Protestant fatalities in the months and years following the rebellion is indicative of the way the facts of the rising immediately became embroiled in myth and propaganda. If one thing is clear, it's that the memory of the 1641 rebellion would play a key role in fueling religious and political tensions in Ireland throughout the centuries that followed. After the Restoration, October 23rd was declared as a day of commemoration, marked by church services and a sermon to serve as an annual reminder of Catholic treachery and savagery. Histories of the 1641 Rebellion, such as Sir John Temple's Irish Rebellion, were were reprinted at key historical junctures to lobby against the granting of Catholic rights. Iconic images from the 1641 Rebellion, such as the drowning um, of a hundred Protestants in the River Ban at Portadown in County Armagh, frequently appeared in publications. At the heart of the myth of the Irish Rebellion are the 1641 depositions, a collection of several thousand witness testimonies made by the Protestant settler community in the aftermath of the Rebellion, which are preserved in the manuscripts Department at Trinity College, Dublin. As the principal evidence um, of the sharply contested allegation that the rebellion involved the pre-planned indiscriminate slaughter of Protestant civilians, the depositions have been central to protracted and heated, to say the very least, scholarly and popular debates about the nature and course of the rebellion, one which focuses almost exclusively on the violence of the Catholic insurgents. Unfortunately, however, no one spent much time actually looking at the depositions themselves, and much of the controversy is based on a relatively small number of depositions that were first put into the public domain by Protestant polemicists of the 1640s. These are, of course, the most lurid, extreme, and horrifying examples of Catholic violence. So the 2010 online publication of all 19,000 plus pages of the 1641 depositions on an open access website hosted by Trinity was truly groundbreaking. It made the collection fully accessible for the first time in centuries, with all the added research potential of digitisation. In short, it offered a new way of systematically analysing the 1641 depositions for what they revealed about the rebellion and 17th century Ireland more broadly. The 1641 depositions represent an archival resource that is unparalleled in early modern Europe in its size, scope and influence. The launch of the project was therefore high profile and very newsworthy, both um, in and outside the scholarly community in Ireland and beyond. And with the launch of the 1641 depositions website, my interest in 1641 took a new direction. I initially accessed the website as a user, but I quickly became interested in the project itself, um, and especially the way it situated itself in relation to Northern Ireland. The predominant theme through the publicity materials was that the 1641 depositions project couldn't have happened um, without the peace process, fair enough. But as I read around the project, the formal launch, the newspaper coverage, the outreach activities, I started to feel a little uneasy um, and then annoyed, and now we come back to the importance of my um, being a northerner. Because in the public discourse um, surrounding the 1641 depositions, there was the assumption that 1641 was just a Northern Irish issue, part of its past and future, and not one of major concern to the Republic. I started to think that I'd be making a mistake by referring to 1641 as an Irish rebellion, that it had been an Ulster one all along. And so I began to interrogate what it really means to remember 1641 as an Ulster Rebellion, which has involved exploring how 1641 has been remembered in Northern Ireland, both during and after the Troubles, and how this compares the memories of 1641 in the Republic of Ireland. So I want to think this afternoon about how the 1641 Rebellion is remembered in Northern Ireland and in relation to Northern Ireland. I want to critique the insistent association of 1641 with Northern Ireland, and by highlighting the Irish revisionist history agenda of the 1641 depositions project, I hope to expose the implicit but extremely problematic border that is drawn between Northern Ireland myth and Republic of Ireland history. Ultimately, I want to probe um, the claim made again and again, um, and in doing so, respond to some of the questions being raised in the emerging field of memory and reconciliation studies, and spearheaded by Anne Rigney and others. Can remembering the 1641 Rebellion really help to facilitate reconciliation in post-conflict Northern Ireland? So to give you some um, sense of uh, of the organization of my paper, um, I want to first provide an account of the role of the 1641 Depositions in the history uh, History and Memory of the Rebellion and consider how the depositions project located itself in this history. I then want to think in more detail about how Northern Ireland, um, both in its troubled past and post-conflict future, was appropriate for the promotions of the 1641 depositions project and reflect a little on the impact of this. Um, I want to consider um, what this might suggest about the role of 1641 in the national memories of the Republic of Ireland and compare it specifically to the persistence um, of memories of Cromwell. At that point, I want to return to Northern Ireland and return to how 1641 and explore how 1641 has been remembered by Protestant communities in Portadown and Belfast. And from this context, I want to turn finally to the issue of memory and reconciliation and consider how the, of the, se- how the conflicts um, of the 17th century might be incorporated within a post-conflict Northern Ireland. In doing so, I'll consider briefly how the recent Reimaging Communities Programme replaced one particularly contentious mural of Cromwell that was prominently displayed in the Shankill Estate in Belfast. Um, so that's the plan. So, um, to get started then, the 1641 depositions um, are essentially the witness testimonies of Protestants from all social backgrounds concerning their experiences of the 1641 rebellion. They were gathered after a commission for the despoiled subject, consisting of eight Church of Ireland clergymen, headed by Henry Jones, Dean of Kilmore, um, was set up in December 1641, charged with collecting sworn statements um, from refugees. Their formal function was to register claims and issue certificates of loss to the deponents, but they also performed an informal information-gathering function. The depositions document the loss of goods, military activity, and the alleged crimes committed by the Irish insurgents, including assault, stripping, imprisonment, and murder. Individual testimonies are shaped by the deponent's verbal response um, to a series um, of pre-established questions. Um, but the forum also seems to have allowed considerable flexibility for the respondents um, to tell uh, their own stories, and actually that's my, kind of the background of my interest in them. They're therefore very interesting as examples of authorship, both literate and oral, um, of men and women from a range of social and economic backgrounds throughout Ireland. The depositions archive includes more than 8,000 items, representing about 4,000 individual deponents. For many of these, their depositions represent the only evidence of their existence. Within a few months of the establishment of the commission, Bishop Jones published um, a remonstrance of diverse, remarkable passages concerning the Church and Kingdom of Ireland. This added to the already substantial body of Irish massacre literature that had been published in the weeks and months after the rebellion. Um, the first, um, the and the last news from Ireland, being a relation of the bloody proceedings of the rebellious papists there, um, had been on sale in London a little over a week after the outbreak of violence. But what distinguished Jones's work from the preceding publications and um, made a characteristic of what would follow was his use of the deposition evidence in the construction of his account of Catholic orchestrated atrocity um, in Ireland. Um, so you can see here um, in this um, uh, excerpt the way in which he uses footnotes to identify particular um, depositions and particular um, Protestant deponents. Um, and he also includes abstracts, um, uh, summaries um, from, the, from different uh, depositions. Jones's book was the first that made the 1641 depositions integral to Protestant representations of the Irish Rebellion and its influence is keenly felt in Sir John Temple's infamous um, The Irish Rebellion, um, first published in 1646. Um, And he's got this massive section in the middle of of a very long book, actually, um, that uh, includes some of the most notorious cruelties and barbarous murders committed by the Irish um, rebels. Um, So um, you can see here that um, he, he... Produces a narrative um, of those notorious cruelties, uh, and you'll see in the margins and um, the particular deponents again have been cited with some of the details um, of the depositions. And here it's, it's nicely ordered and structured. He has very much control um, over what he is uh, uh, what the, of uh, control over the deposition evidence. A few pages later, and um, whenever things start getting very gory, whenever they talk about dismembered pregnant women, um, you can see that it's um, the, where the depositions e- are where the temple's narrative. End and the deposition start is very um, unclear. They kind of blur together in this kind of chaotic voices from the grave um, approach that he has. Um, I always think it's so interesting just the way in which the, um, the, the text is laid out on the page there. Um, Temple uses the depositions to make the following argument, um, that um, after the crushing of the rebellion, such a course taken, such provisions made, and such a wall of separation set up betwixt the Irish and the British, as it shall not be in their, the Irish's um, power um, to rise up as now and in all former ages they have done, to destroy and root them out in a moment before they'd be able to put themselves into a posture of defence or gather together to make any considerable resistance against their bloody um, attempts. Um, so forceful words and very kind of characteristic of the kind of Protestant polemic um, that emerged in the aftermath of the rebellion. Temple's book hugely influenced subsequent Protestant representations of 1641 um, and numerous editions um, of his book were reprinted at key junctures throughout the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, um, um, as you'll, you'll see some of them there. What distinguishes the use of the depositions by Temple and later Protestant polemicists is that the same few depositions are made to speak for the whole collection. Um, John Gibney estimates that only about 200 of the depositions, so out of 4,000 plus, um, have been in the public domain in any real way, and these tend to be the most lurid examples. Then the individual depositions are cut or edited in a way that um, misrepresents their whole content. Crucially, the depositions that are reprinted time and time again are the ones that describe the murder of Protestants by Catholics, but as Aidan Clark has shown in a systematic study of the archive, only one-fifth of the depositions describe death by violence. In other words, the depositions' reputation for depicting an orgy of violence, as one historian famously put it, um, is simply not true. The publication of the 1641 depositions in 2010 was third time lucky for the researchers at Trinity. The Irish government had blocked a first attempt in the, attempt in the, 16, uh, sorry, in the 1930s and a second attempt um, in 1969 was also thwarted. But with the end of the troubles, it seemed that the time was finally right for the publication of the 1641 depositions, a venture that was jointly funded to the tune of 1 million euros um, by the AHRC in the UK and the IRCHSS in, um, in Ireland. The main aim um, of the project was to transcribe, digitize, and make available on a publicly accessible website all the 1641 depositions. The ultimate objective was to make openly available the sources necessary to dismantle the myth of the 1641 rebellion and replace it with objective history. The project produced the website, which um, apparently had 40,000 registered users within six months um, of its launch, um, it produced print editions of the depositions um, in four volumes published by the Irish Manuscripts Commission, um, a public exhibition, um, Ireland in Turmoil um, displayed um, in the Long Room at Trinity, several academic conferences which led to two edited collections and at least one monograph, as well as a series of educational resources for secondary schools in Northern Ireland and um, which were funded by the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs in collaboration with um, NICE. So the peace process um, in Northern Ireland then supplied the right social, political and economic environment um, for the funding of this ambitious project. Interestingly, although funding was secured by the Irish and British research councils, neither of the Northern Irish universities were involved. This was cross-border collaboration that bypassed Northern Ireland. Yet Northern Ireland and its people were constantly evoked by the 1641 depositions project. In an interview with The Guardian, Professor Jane Elmire, one of the principal investigators at Trinity and the project's main spokesperson and hailing from Northern Ireland herself, said that the depositions could now be explored, quote, in a way that um, we couldn't have done 10 or 15 years ago during the Troubles. The same article reported that um, groups supporting peace and reconciliation in Northern Ireland have been among early users of the resources. Furthermore, the project and accompanying exhibition were officially launched in Dublin on October 23, 2010 um, by the then-President Mary McAleese and the late Reverend Ian Paisley, key figures, of course, in the Northern Irish peace process. Both were also Northern Ireland natives from opposite sides of the religious and political divides. McAleese was a Belfast Catholic whose family home had been burnt out by Loyalists in the 1970s, and Paisley, of course, long the booming spokesperson of an unyielding Protestant Loyalism. One had recently retired as Northern Ireland's first minister and while the other was still serving as Irish president, the first from north of the border. The choice of these two figures to launch the project helped to relocate 1641 in the sectarian history of Northern Ireland and within the memories of the divided community of the North in particular. And it was significant that the Ulster depositions were the project's flagship collection. The publication of the Ulster depositions was funded first and independently of the other three provinces and they were subsequently published nearly a year before the other provinces. This meant that in the excitement surrounding the launch of the 1641 depositions, only the Ulster ones were actually available at that time. They were launched with a bang, while the others came with a whimper. And there are, I'm sure, many reasons for this decision, but the effect was to create the illusion of an Ulster rebellion that primarily took place actually in the six counties um, of Northern Ireland. Because of the unavailability of um, depositions from the other provinces provinces of Ireland, the publicity materials for the website and the accompanying exhibition draw heavily on Ulster atrocities, especially in Portadown. And this picture emerges even more strongly in the newspaper coverage surrounding the 1641 depositions, where most often it is the witnesses from Ulster, and especially from Portadown, who are made to speak for all of the Protestant victims. One of the most interesting articles that was published um, um, in the Irish Times with the headline, um, Witnesses to Mass um, Murder in the Icy Ban. This is, sorry, um, one of the most interesting articles, I think. And the article leads with a thick description of the drowning of about 100 Protestants um, in the river ban at Portadown. And it starts, uh, the winter of 1641 was the coldest in memory, but in Portadown it is remembered for something else. That year, one of the worst atrocities in this island's history took place when about 100 men, women and children were stripped of their clothes, corralled overnight in a barn and then thrown over the town bridge to drown in the icy waters of the ban. By focusing um, in such detail on this singular atrocity, undoubtedly one of the worst of 1641, although there were comparable ones outside of Ulster, the massacre reported on is made to speak for all of the violence of 1641 Although, in effect, it speaks only for itself, and because the broader national context is not provided. Indeed, later the article explicitly states that when Sir Philem O'Neill, an Ulster landowner um, um, who who led the rebellion up there, um, whenever O'Neill's supporters in Dublin, this is a quote, failed to turn out, the action was left to the poor and dispossessed among the Ulster Irish, who it is alleged committed many atrocities. It is thus the Ulster Irish who are made to bear the weight of responsibility for the rebellion. Moreover, not only is the 1641 rebellion localised, but memory of the rebellion is localised also, as Portadown remembers its own traumatic past. And the article draws upon specific depositions in its emotive and personalised representation of rebellion experiences, that of Elizabeth Price of County Armagh and William Bickerdike of County Fermanagh. The choice of two deponents from Ulster once again underlines the article's localisation, ghettoisation even, um, of the 1641 rebellion in Ulster. And it implicitly links 1641 with present-day Northern Ireland when it concludes... But while the pages of history are slow to turn, it's 369 years since the of Down drownings. On October 22nd, the Ireland in Turmoil exhibition will celebrate its formal opening, though it's already open to the public, with President McAleese making the speech and the Reverend Dame Paisley responding, the presence of both ensuring that Elizabeth Price and her poor drowned children um, are not forgotten. Elizabeth Price, by the way, um, uh, testifies that she lost five children um, in, um, in the drownings, um, and, and she's probably the most ex- uh, famous of the deponents. Um, I've done a lot of work on her. Um, Referring to the slow-turning pages of history, the article implicitly links the violence of 1641 through the Northern Irish Troubles to the peace process, which is underlined by its flagging of Macaulay and Paisley's role in the launch. As spokespeople for the two divided communities of Northern Ireland, and both instrumental, of course, in securing the peace agreement, the article suggests that we have reached the last page um, of that particular history book, Yet I'd suggest that the Ulster manifestation of the rebellion represents only one volume in this series. This particular history doesn't begin, begin and end in Northern Ireland. So, while the 1641 rebellion has long held a pivotal position in Irish historiography, um, as John Gibney has magisterially um, described in his recent book, The Shadow of a Year, um, and while most of the historical scholarship on 1641 has emerged from universities in the Republic of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland seems to lack a significant cultural uh, memory of sixteen forty one. Gibney, for example, writes of his surprise about the relative absence of sixteen forty one in the national folklore collection at UCD, and um, which, as he says, scotched his plans for a sixteen forty one counterpart to Guy Byner's groundbreaking study of the seventeen ninety eight rebellion in Irish folk history. This is in stark contrast um, to the rich memory culture surrounding Cromwell's notorious slaughter of the defeated garrisons at Drogheda and Wexford just a few years later, which as Michal O'Shokra and Sarah Covington have shown is still very much alive in the Irish imagination, and I think Covington in particular has found real treasures um, in the folklore collection. Um, Oshako, for example, begins his book on Cromwell um, with an anecdote about um, Bertie Ahern, who, upon visiting the office of the British Foreign Secretary Robin Cook in 1997, abruptly left the office upon seeing a painting of Oliver Cromwell. Apparently, Ahern refused to return until Cook had removed the picture of that murdering bastard, um, which Cook then dutifully did. Um, So why is one set of 17th century massacres so widely remembered in the Republic of Ireland while another is not? Perhaps it's connected with the perceived identities of victim um, and perpetrator. While the victims of Cromwell are widely identified as Irish Catholics, the best known victims of the 1641 rebellion, and I do stress that the best known victims, um, thanks to the preeminence of the 1641 depositions, are loaded, located in the Protestant settler community, with Irish themselves notoriously the instigators of this particular instance of sectarian violence. In other words, the 1641 Rebellion represents the inverse of the Cromwellian Rebellion in terms of the national, religious, and political constitution of victim and perpetrator. I therefore suggest that in comparison with the Cromwellian Massacres, the events of 1641 cannot be as easily accommodated in the Republic of Ireland's national narrative of colonial victimisation. And the prominence of Cromwell in the Republic of Ireland's cultural memory against the relative amnesia around the 1641 rebellion is apparent in much of the Irish press coverage of the launch of the 1641 Depositions Project. In the Irish Times article, for example, the description of a hundred men, women and children who died in the River Ban deliberately obscures their ethnic and religious identity. A question then follows in the article and the quote is, was this another crime by the old enemy Cromwell? No, it was a massacre of Protestants by Irish-speaking natives intent on revenge for land taken from them by the Ulster settlers. So it doesn't take long for the article to evoke the memory of the notorious Cromwell and the rhetorical question acknowledges the broad popular memory of Cromwell's massacres compared to the atrocities of 1641. It is implied that while the Irish Times reader knows all about Cromwell, he or she lacks a history or a memory of 1641. Furthermore, it seems that 1641 can only be remembered in relation to Cromwell's violence. And this assumption is taken even further by a piece in the Irish Examiner which has the headline, Cromwell Massacres to Face Ultimate Cold Case Review. In an extraordinary sleight of hand, um, the 1641 massacres are entirely elided in favor of the more familiar Cromwellian massacres. Um, In the headline, the memory of the Cromwellian massacres um, subsumes 1641 completely, Um, and the issue is barely clarified in the lead paragraph. Historians, linguists, and software specialists are to trawl through witness accounts taking after the Irish Rebellion and Cromwellian massacres of 1641 in the ultimate cold case um, review. So again, Irish Rebellion and Cromwell massacres are blurred together, yet the 1641 depositions are not in any way about the the atrocities committed by Cromwell. The link between Cromwell and the Rebellion is provided in the second paragraph. Um, And this is important, actually. The witness statements which provided Oliver Cromwell with justification for his notorious slaughter of the defeated garrisons of Drogheda and Wexford are to be put online and will be cross-checked for accuracy and exaggeration. Even while beginning to disentangle the Cromwellian massacres from the events of 1641, the syntax ensures that the focus is on the massacres of Catholics by Cromwell. In fact, the events of 1641 are relevant only insofar as they provided the justification for Cromwell's violence. Interestingly, the article is accompanied with an image of the Portadown Massacre, which has the tagline, Protestant settlers are massacred by Catholics at Portadown Bridge over the River Band during the 1641 Rebellion. This image illustrates a crime north of the border, yet the article's consistent emphasis is on how that crime is avenged and exceeded by Cromwell in the south. If there is no longer a significant cultural memory of the 1641 rebellion in the Republic of Ireland, I now want to explore the way 1641 is remembered in Northern Ireland, particularly among the Ulster Protestant community. It is generally accepted um, that this is the community in which 1641 memories are most strongly felt. The alleged massacres of 1641, like King William's victory at the Boyne in 1690, have played a key role in creating and sustaining a collective Ulster Protestant identity. To this day, the Orange Order Lodge at Portadown. Um, carries a banner depicting the massacres of Protestants um, in the River Ban when they parade every 12th of July. Um, and this particular banner, um, banner dates to 1971, so very early days of the Troubles. Um, and there are other banners um, such as this one. I have to apologise for the quality of the image, um, but you'll notice um, the similarity in the way the atrocity is represented um, in the two banners. Um, and I always really like um, the way in which the, this particular image interacts with the idea of the rising sun because of the images of kind baptism and kind of rebirth um, there Um, there's also a memorial which I've um, recently discovered um, to 1641 in the pleasure gardens um, on um, Bridge Street Portadown Um, so here here it is and um, here's the um, close up you can see maybe if you can read the writing there um, that it was erected by the officers and brethren of Portadown Lodge Orange Order Loyal Orange Order Lodge number one always quite like the LOL, (laughs) a different uh, meaning of the LOL, so it was um, erected by um, this particular lodge on the 350th anniversary of the rebellion in 1991, actually a kind of a better anniversary than the launch of the depositions project actually, the 369th. Um, A tree was also planted in the same year. Um, uh, on behalf of another Portadown District Lodge, um, um, and this was uh, pl- uh, dedicated by um, by Paisley. Um, Also in 1991, the Orange Order Imported Portadown produced a video, um, which uh, at the moment I haven't got my hands on, um, which has the title Mini Twelfth and Reenactment, which explicitly likened 1641 to the Nazi Holocaust. And so I suppose I'm interested in the kind of coordination of a lot of these different kind of um, commemorations on the 350th anniversary. And since that date, since 1991, Portadown's annual mini 12th parade involving all of the district, um, district's orange order lodges lays a wreath at the 1641 Memorial in the Pleasure Gardens during its march through the town. So it is now part of a, kind of a long kind of commemorative um, history since that date. Um, I'm grateful to David Weir, acting curator of Craig Avon um, Museum Services, for supplying me with the photos of the Portadown Memorial and also for making it possible for me to visit the site. Um, because actually, neither the Pleasure Gardens nor the 1641 memorials are publicly accessible. Um, they're in the grounds of the Portadown Bowling Club, um, which is locked um, when the club is not playing. Thus, it's clear that local memories um, of the 1641 rebellion in Portadown are preserved by and for the Orange Order. Um, it is probably also um, the Portadown District of the Orange Order that has preserved um, this folk song um, which I've recently come across and um, which I really want to look into but even if you just have a look at the first verse in 1641 those Fenians formed a plan to massacre us Protestants down by the river Ban to massacre us Protestants and not to spare a man but to drive us down like a herd of swine into the river Ban Um, and if I had have had the nerve I might have sung it because I do have the music for it (laughs) but I'm not going to do it and you'll all be very grateful for that. <laughs> Not a chance. Um, and so it's, it's a long um, kind of uh, focus on with seven verses. But memory um, memories of 1641 extend beyond Portadown. The rebellion has been referenced in loyalist murals in Belfast um, such as this one depicting Cromwell which is painted um, on Shankill Parade Belfast um, in 2002 and um, the reference is in the text there um, uh, uh, the, Our clergy persecuted and our Protestant churches desecrated. Also, our Protestant people slaughtered in their thousands, um, a reference to 1641. Um, um, And it's also um, the subject um, of a mural um, in Hopewell Crescent, Belfast, um, uh, which was around 2000, and which takes 1641 as its primary focus, um, even though the date is wrong. Um, I think it says um, 1600, yeah, um, 1600 there, and it it should be 1641. Within the latter mural is a declaration, the ethnic cleansing um, still goes on today. So there is this kind of very tangible connection between um, the 17th century pass and um, this particular community's um, sense um, of uh, um, of their own identity uh, in, in 2000. There is clearly a rich folk history in 1641 in parts of Ulster. Um, um, particularly imported on, and I'm sure I'm only scratching um, the surface at this stage. Um, I'm not from the community in which memories of 1641 have been preserved, and exploring this topic has taken me to the other side, and um, forcing me to confront my own memories of moving as a child from a Republican part of West Belfast to Unionist Lisburn with its Union Jacks, um, its red, white and blue bunting and painting, its orange halls and marches, um, and where the local Catholic church, um, attached to the school that I um, was to go to, had just been destroyed in a petrol bomb. So basically, this research has brought me into dialogue with aspects of unionist culture or loyalist culture that I find intimidating um, and oppressive. And I'm only beginning to think about how I might relate this to broader questions um, in memory and reconciliation um, studies. I'm actually interested in kind of the personal and how that um, kind of shapes our kind of research interests, um, but I'm not quite too sure about how that, that actually works out. I don't even know if I want to go there. Is <laughs> the other issue. Um, so, when the peace process with the peace process came, the possibility that the 1641 depositions, rather than continuing to fuel sectarian tensions, might actually help to cement peace in Northern Ireland. In an interview with the Guardian, Professor O'Maher said that the depositions could now be explored in a way we couldn't have done ten or fifteen years ago during the Troubles. The same article reported that groups supporting peace and reconciliation in Northern Ireland have been among early users of the resources. I think I've mentioned that already. Its subheading um, for this particular article also suggested the project may heal ancient quarrels. Um, at the launch of the 1641 Depositions Project um, and the Ireland in Turmoil exhibition, all the speakers emphasised the importance of coming to terms with traumas of the past in order to forge a better future. The Trinity and um, Provost argued the exhibition represents the coming of age of this island and the belief that we can put together this complex past and share our history with the rest of the world. McAleese suggested let us hope that, our, that their voices and their suffering far from driving us deeper into our sectarian bunkers do the opposite and inspire us to keep on working to ensure an end forever to such suffering. And Paisley proposed let us introduce these parts of our history in the right way to our children. And it's interesting that he's written, you know, he, he's involved in various publications around 1641 um, which doesn't do that um, certainly in the old bad days of the 1980s. Um, but despite stressing the importance of remembering the rebellion, Macalise and Paisley's statements recognise the difficulties, even the perils of such memory. Macalise acknowledges the dangers of the depositions driving us deeper into our sectarian bunkers. And Paisley's speech not only raises the spectre of the wrong way of remembering the rebellion, but is also ambiguous about what constitutes the right way. And now that I think about it, even Jane O'Meyer's kind of words suggest that you know she, um, she says at, at um, some point um, that she would hate if it was used for sectarian purposes, so they've all got this anxiety um, around this. Both speeches um, therefore raise doubts about the possibility of co-opting the notorious depositions for truth and reconciliation in Northern Ireland. And this apparent unease with the role of the 1641 depositions in post-conflict Northern Ireland also emerges from that Guardian article. The article is carefully balanced in only the way the Guardian can um, to express both sides of the argument around the depositions. Um, The lead paragraph introduced the 1641 depositions as um, the 31 handwritten volumes of embittered 17th century testimony, um, which have been alternately hailed as the world's first war crimes investigation or damned as a prototype dodgy dossier and um, packed with black and um, political propaganda. I like the way the Guardian kind of, kind of cl- clearly kind of connects in with kind of the language and um, that is kind of going round at the time around these kind of, kind of political cr- corruption and propaganda. Um, it also refuses to engage with the more lurid evidence from the depositions and even the image that accompanies the article is probably the cleanest that exists in, um, from the incendiary source text. Um, which is kind of has lo- loads and loads of different uh, uh, massacre images. This is in contrast to the editorial decisions made um, by some of the Irish um, newspapers, such as the Irish Independent, um, which republishes the more gruesome images in order to deny the veracity of the deposition evidence, or at least the deposition evidence that appeared in print Thus the pull quote from the Irish Independent um, article states, researchers will examine whether propaganda images of settlers being raped, mutilated and murdered were exaggerated. Um, Of course, the only possible conclusion to this is that yes, they are exaggerated. The Guardian also takes a more objective scholarly approach to the 1641 depositions. Accordingly, and it includes the full text of the deposition, so it's very unusual in that respect. This is another Portadown story, but not the more famous um, Elizabeth Price. This is Philip Taylor, who was deposed on February 8, 1642, so very, very early. Um, um, they were kind of taken right up until the, um, 1643 and beyond um, his story focuses on his own imprisonment but also offers a hearsay account of the mass drowning um, um, in the River Ban. Um, This is where um, the deposition ends, um, um, as it's presented in the Guardian. Um, And you'll see, if you just read that, um, there's something missing, um, and the deponent had credibly heard that one, Mr. Fullerton, a minister, minister, and another in his company were also murdered by the rebels before the drowning of the Protestants aforesaid, and that the rebels, and then it stops um, to um, to be signed. So there's clearly um, something missing before the end of the transcription. The 1641 deposition's website allows us um, to access the deposition in its entirety, um, and the cut text is revealed. So the rebels, aforesaid, killed a dyer's wife of Ross Trevor at Newry and ripped up her belly, she being with child of two children, and threw her and the children into a ditch, and this opponent um, drive a saw away from a way that was eating one of the children. So what was cut from the guardian's deposition was a gruesome des- description and a first-hand witness testimony um, of the murder of a pregnant woman um, and her unborn twins, an example of one of the dominant atrocity um, st- stories told by Temple and others. So how, how did, was this um, excluded? How was it cut um, and why? Um, the missing lines, um, if you have a look, and I know you can't really see very well, um, the missing lines are presented in the online transcription, so I've just literally copied it from um, the website, um, are presented as marginalia, so with angled brackets just at the bottom there. But according to the Dictionary of English Manuscript Terminology, a low marginalia is literally a Latin word meaning things in the margin. In manuscript studies, it is a collective term for notes or markings entered by hand in the margins of a book or manuscript by a reader or annotator, so it's something separate from the main text. Um, what we have in the deposition is not marginalia by this definition. It is merely a continuation of the deposition on the margins of the page. It's just using up the available space, um, as you'll see um, from the original um, deposition. So you can see the, um, the, the kind of the way in which the deposition is continued um, uh, into the, the left margin the database has inadvertently and erroneously suggested that this part of the deposition is marginal, secondary, detached and the Guardian doesn't challenge this designation. But really there's no basis for its exclusion. So the Guardian actually does the opposite of what Temple does whether intentionally or not. It suppresses the more lurid aspects of the depositions. The cut makes this deposition more measured, um, more balanced, more believable and more easily accommodated in a truth and, um, and reconciliation agenda that is very much forwarded by um, the Guardian article so while the article speaks of the healing possibilities of remembering the 1641 through the depositions its failure to engage fully with the most challenging aspects of the deposition evidence suggests the difficulty even the possibility um, um, of this purpose. I want to turn finally to that mural of Cromwell which enjoyed a prominent position on um, Shankill Parade in Belfast in 2002 is one of 10 contentious murals removed from the Lower Shankill um, in 2009 under the auspices of the re imaging Communities programme funded by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. The stated aim of the programme was to, quote, engage local people and their communities in finding ways of replacing divisive murals and emblems with more positive imagery. Among the loyalist murals that were labelled as contentious, the mural of Cromwell is relatively unusual in having historical subject rather than depicting mass gunmen and Loyalist paramilitary organisations such as this one. Um, Yet the Cromwell mural, um, if we return to that, Um, was clearly divisive, although less in in the image than the text, um, where there are two quotes um, attributed to Cromwell. The first asserts, Catholicism is more than a religion, it is a political power. Therefore I'm led to believe that there will be no peace in Ireland until the Catholic Church is crushed. And the second refers to, Our clergy persecuted and our Protestant churches desecrated. Also our Protestant people slaughtered in their thousands. The text expresses the siege mentality of the Protestant community in this area, um, and an implicit violent threat against Northern Ireland's Catholics. It's clear then um, why it was flagged for removal. In two thousand and eleven, the Cromwell mural was placed was replaced um, with this sculpture. Um, Remember, respect, resolution. It was created by Northern Irish artist Leslie Cherry, who on her website describes the process. She says, the project was led by the Lower Shankill Community Association, who worked with the artists and community gatekeepers in negotiating the removal of a contentious sectarian mural depicting Oliver Cromwell. Cherry led a series of workshops, site visits, and discussions with the community to create this work, which represents the Shankill estate's eagerness to remember the past, but also look towards um, and embrace the future. Cherry's website includes photos of the process, um, and what is striking is the involvement um, of women and children um, in the early stages of the project. Um, Basically, the women and children create a blue peter-like prototype um, for the sculpture using cardboard boxes um, and tinfoil. Their participation is less visible when it comes to the manufacturing and erection of the stainless steel structure, however. In an interview for the Arts Council website, Cherry um, explains the significance of the sculpture. She says, with this sculpture, the feelings of the community are again transferred um, through an artwork by using strong, positive text. The use of steel references the industrial heritage of the city and the clean, simple lines add to the positive and clear message that the sculpture conveys. Other stakeholders speak of the simple message of the sculpture. Ian McLaughlin from the Lower Shankill Community Association commented, the words reflect the community's feelings regarding the past, their respect for others' views, and ultimately a positive vision for the future. Remember, respect, resolution captured the community's um, feelings wholeheartedly. That's the end of that quote. Bill Rawson, the pioneering researcher of political murals in Northern Ireland, has been highly critical of the Reimaging Communities programme, concluding in 2012... Overall, the impression, this quote, overall the impression from viewing the range of re-imaging murals is that their sting has been pulled. They have been sanitized, depoliticized. And two years earlier, he had argued, the way to the future is through remembering rather than enforced forgetting, through display rather than whitewashing, through mature contestation rather than bland reconciliation. Wilson doesn't look at the Remember and Respect resolution sculpture um, specifically. I think it actually predates um, his research. It certainly predates the publication of of the first article. Um, And while I very much agree with his overall assessment of the deficiency of the re-imaging program, and there are many deficiencies, um, I question whether there's any kind of bland reconciliation at work in this particular um, piece of art. I think it's actually unusual in its complexity. First of all, there's a profound ambiguity of those three supposedly simple words remember, respect, resolution. Secondly, there's a sculpture's affiliation with another reimaging mural in the Shankill Estate um, called Nothing About Us and um, Without Us is For Us, also created by Cherry. And um, this earlier mural is a montage of over a thousand images, photographs taken by residents, images um, of artworks the community has made, historic images of the area, street names and landmarks which come together to make this forthright statement from the Shankill community to their political representatives and then state about the need for consultation with and involvement of the community in moving forward. Instead of bland reconciliation, both artworks acknowledge the difficulty, complexity and challenges of moving forward in post-conflict Northern Ireland. In a statement on her website, Cherry stresses her interest in exploring through her artistic practice, quote, the tension and hypocrisy of nostalgia and memory juxtaposed with the reality of a situation remembered. But what exactly is being remembered um, in the Remember Resolution of Respect Resolution sculpture? It now um, stands beside a brick wall, scrubbed clean of paint, and its affect depends on the sculpture's interaction with what is no longer there, that old mural of Cromwell. Yet a photograph of the mural does remain at the site, enclosed in a museum-style plaque, a relic of Northern Ireland's uh, trouble past. You have to look for the museum um, label, though. It is not meant to be viewed with um, the sculpture. Um, so we come back to the sculpture, the scrub- scrubbed wall, and what exactly is being remembered. Is it the mural um, and the troubles? Or Cromwell, the 1641 rebellion, and centuries of sectarian conflict, or both? I have more research to do, and uh, I have to start with uh, interviews with and Cherry and the Lower Shankill Community Association, um, and I'm not yet ready to draw conclusions. But neither is the remember, respect resolution sculpture. Despite the apparently simple message of these three words, ultimately there is no clarity about what or how to remember what is to be respected and how, or how a long-lasting resolution to conflict can be achieved and it's precisely in drawing attention to the unanswered questions that this sculpture is a proper reflection of the role of remembering in transitional Northern Ireland.